Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast, brought to you by Simply Physio, aimed at helping you live an enjoyable, fit, and healthy life in and around our community of Knoxville, Tennessee. And now, here is your host, Dr. John Mark Chesney. Hey guys, I'm uh, super excited today for today's episode of Stay Healthy Knoxville. I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Tanya Baker. Dr. Baker is a forward-thinking physician specializing in the field of rheumatology. She is a brilliant mind and more caring heart. And I know today's episode is packed with applicable tips for people that are um, suffering or dealing with arthritis or other um, rheumatoid disorders. Uh, Dr. Baker, she grew up in rural Oklahoma, graduated with her bachelor's from Northwestern Oklahoma State University. After college, she received her medical degree from the American University of the Caribbean Medical School, completing medical rotations in London and John Hopkins affiliate hospitals. After graduating from AUC with honors, she completed an internal medicine residency at the University of Tennessee Medical Center, followed by a rheumatology fellowship at the University of Kentucky. In 2015, after completing her fellowship, she moved to Knoxville and began practicing in the field of rheumatology. And the latest update is um, that as of January 2022, Dr. Baker opened up her own clinic, Rheumatologic. Uh, is that right? Rheumatologic. Rheumatologics, which I don't want to steal the thunder, but it's an outside the box uh, medical box um, model, which I'm sure we'll get into that on the podcast here today. But thank yeah. you. Well, welcome to Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast, thank you. Dr. Baker. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we love to, you know, get started just really hearing. I know we kind of um, rattled off just your very quickly your kind of medical, you know, went here, went here, went here. But I love to hear maybe take us back to like how you even got interested into the field of medicine and kind of take us on that journey to eventually, you know, opening up your own practice. But kind of take us back in the day when when did you realize that you wanted to maybe even get into medicine? Yeah, so that goes back pretty far, actually, dating back to probably when I was about 10 years old. In 1990, I was living in California and taking care of animals, actually. I was volunteering my time at a stable, and at that time, I wanted to be a veterinarian. So I wanted to be a doctor of animals. And that's where it initially started. And then as I got older, I got into athletics and that was amazing. That ended up driving me to uh, sports medicine. So I was working with the high school and doing classes through Oklahoma University to learn, you know, sports medicine techniques. And then I became, oh my gosh, I became a Tybo instructor and personal trainer. And I loved having the ability to communicate with my patients. Oh my goodness. So that uh, the skies were the limit for me. Uh, I actually started working as a candy striper and then a certified medical assistant. I started working as a... A candy striper? Yeah, a candy striper. Which is? Somebody who volunteers their time, uh, usually nursing homes or hospitals, just giving kind of a social support to patients because usually, you know, in times like that, it's it's quite depressing sure. and, and sad. And it's always nice to have kind of a happy face come in and, and share something that might be fun, such as coloring or puzzles or, oh my gosh, I would just, I honestly felt like a waitress to tell you the truth, but I enjoyed it. And I got to bring smiles to their faces mm. and, and, and I actually had fun doing it. So that led, I, I actually ended up being invited to become a, like a home assistant for several patients because their family members had met me while they were in these um, long, long-term care facilities and wanted to bring their 
their parents, usually back home. And so they would hire me, and that's what I started doing was kind of a home health type nurse, uh, CMA. And, uh, oh, my goodness, uh, everybody just kind of pulled me from one direction to the other. Yeah. I ended up working at um, Sure Medical Center out of Oklahoma, out of Oklahoma, which is where I went to undergrad. And there, oh, gosh, I learned everything. And I was fascinated by it. Um, one of the nurse practitioners loved learning some of the organic chemistry with me and then learning how to apply that and use that for, you know, medications and what have you. So it literally went from one thing to the next. Um, the thing that I did learn is I, I wanted to have the ability to communicate with my patients and help them in whatever way I could. I was fascinated with the body. Um, I always did well in like human anatomy and in and, and science type courses. So that was where I was guided. And one of the chiropractors, um, Dr. Bagnadovich, um, he kind of took me under his wing and he's like, oh, you would love this. And so I actually had a full ride scholarship at Parker Chiropractic out of Dallas. Interesting. <laughs> and I was waiting to do that and working at McBride um, Orthopedic Center in Oklahoma City, which was new. It was all, it was a brand new facility. It was all orthopedic physicians and they took me underneath their wings and oh my gosh, they were like, oh, you're going to get so bored with chiropractic care. You should go into um, medical school and become an orthopedic surgeon. So I did, I thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, went through, ended up dropping, you know, my scholarship, applying for AUC, getting in, traveling. And then once I got to uh, Johns Hopkins, Dr. Norman D., he was born on D-Day and he was Asian. But anyway, he was like, you just have this natural inquisitive nature about you. And I don't know that surgery day in, day out is going to be appetizing to you for the rest of your life. Sure. So he set up rotations for me to work with Dr. Sham. I call him Dr. Sham Wow because he's still to this day, I'm, I believe he's still practicing rheumatology and he's probably like 90 at this point. But and Dr. Sham Wow just was fascinating to me. He had such a compassion for his patients. And that was in so 2007-ish. And so some of the newer autoimmune medications that we have that are called biologics had just come out in 1990. And people really didn't start using that until 1995 because they were big, scary drugs. Mm -hmm. And But to see him utilizing that and seeing how the patients responded to that in such a positive way, like their lives were just completely changed by the revolution of these new medications and seeing the, I guess, what he could do to participate, not only helping patients with getting onto the right medications, but he also fo focused on more of the holistic part of taking care of the patient. So he would talk to them about dietary modification, exercise lifestyle, as well as stress management. And we really never got a lot of training in any of those sure. in medical school, unfortunately, despite the fact that those are like the basics to just having a healthy life. And so I wanted that. I was intrigued by all of the complex, I guess, disease cases. I am so sorry, my phone's ringing. And we did, he became kind of the Sherlock Holmes of medicine. And, and so that's when that term was kind of coined in me about rheumatologists. And I wanted to be that person because I love digging. I love figuring out what's going on, getting to the bottom of it, and then treating that. Um, that was kind of a sentinel point because at that point in time, that's when pain was kind of the fifth vital sign. Everybody was so focused on treating pain and had completely missed why people were having pain. And then 
they end up having more issues <laughs> in the end. Yeah. So I wanted to be like that. I wanted to be that person that could make that kind of a change in people's lives. And I wanted to be able to continue getting new cases every day. And then, you know, after I rotated with orthopedic surgery, I was like, I just cannot work 18 hours a day in and out. I just, that's not for me. And so I, that's how I got to where I am. Kind of knew in medical school that I wanted to do rheumatology, even though I still applied for surgery just because I felt like I had to tell you the truth because the guys at McBride were like, you should become orthopedic <laughs> surgery. But I honestly think that Dr. Norma D was, you know, completely correct in a sense that I, I would have gotten bored with that. And I love the fact that you know, rheumatology is ever-changing. Our knowledge about the immune system and our body is just ever-learning, and I love learning. The thing that Normandy used to always tell me, when I used to be kind of that know-it-all, he used to always say, if you know it all, you'll learn nothing. So I learned very quickly to be quiet, and he was exactly right. I learned way more by listening to my patients rather than talking about them. So yeah, so it sounds like you had some very influential mentors who were able to look at some of your traits, your personality, and um, see, help guide you into uh, rheumatology, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Honestly, if it wasn't for them, I probably would be doing orthopedic surgery just because I felt like there was a lot of pressure to do that. Sure. <laughs> but I mean, it's not that I wouldn't enjoy because I actually still like doing procedures, but really getting the time to spend with my patients was far more important. In orthopedic surgery, you know, they see their patients, they do surgery, and then you don't, you see them in follow-up, but you don't ever get to live their life with them. Yeah. And I saw that even after they have surgery, they're probably going to need other procedures eventually uh, for many reasons. And I wanted to be the reason why not to. Yeah. other than why to get surgery. Um, surgery is fine and some people definitely have to have it, but I have definitely learned to become a lot more proactive and preventative in, in, in just overall health. There's just not enough time in a lot of physicians' schedules to, to talk to patients about things that they could be doing to prevent surgery. Um, and yeah, I, I just I just couldn't be the person to encourage patients to say, oh, yeah, you need surgery when I'm like, hey, how can we prevent this from happening? I definitely wouldn't make any money as an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what just reflecting on, you know, um, my interactions uh, with you, Dr. Baker, and I mean, you seem to very like, much enjoy that relationship, that connecting, you know, with your patients and. I can um, see that being not not to say orthopedists don't do right. that as well, but the typical you know orthopedist you know just doesn't have the opportunity to right. fully get to know the patient to follow them on a journey because of how it's really kind of set up you know based off of like you said and kind of procedures <laughs> right pre-op and post-op they see like thirty patients a day and yeah. ask oh just couldn't do that. Right. It's totally not for me. So yeah, so you started getting into the field. You had your fellowship at what, in Kentucky? Yes. Um, University of Kentucky. Dr. Lightfoot was kind of my mentor there and he's he's much older and he has so much wisdom. And uh, Dr. Clipple actually here in Knoxville also helped to mentor me. And the thing that I really love about those older mentors are, are, are the fact that they've seen where rheumatology has come from. They've seen where we really didn't have much for patients, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and yet they tried 
to help the patient in whatever way they could, even though we didn't have any guidelines at that time really set in stone. Was that around when the field started developing there? I mean... So the field of rheumatology, I honestly feel like it started really developing in 1980. Okay. So the biologics came out in 1990. So about 10 years before they officially came out, that's when they really started pushing for research. And and so up until 1990, I mean, I still laugh. Uh, you know, I, I was at Rheumatology Consultants until December 31st, and I had patients that I had inherited that were still on like six grams of aspirin, they used to literally say, titrate your aspirin up until your ears start ringing. That was actually what they would recommend for patients as their treatment. And as I just think about that now, and I'm like, oh my gosh, think of how many GI bleeds <laughs> and kidney failures we had from that, but we didn't have a lot. Yeah. But they tried. Mm-hmm. And that was what impressed me. And I think that that's something that kind of gets lost today because even though we have a lot of guidelines, we have a lot of new medications, sometimes one thing doesn't fit everyone. And sometimes we have to think outside of the box and we have to try things that used to be tried just to see. The fact that they never gave up was a big thing. Whereas I feel like now when we run through the gamut of going through all of the medications that we've come out with and we've studied and it doesn't work, they're like, well, I don't know what else to do for you. And in reality, there's so much more to do. We've forgotten some of the basics of, you know, dietary changes, exercise changes, all Mm -hmm. those other things that can also affect life. Something else that Dr. Lightfoot shared with me that I've never forgotten to this day, he said, if a patient comes in and they are flaring and they've been on the same therapy for a while and they've done well for a long time, you start asking them about what's going on in their life. So that opened the door to having a more personal infor- uh, personal relationship with those patients sure. so that I can help them with something that like some stress in their life might be going on and I might be able to help them with some uh, stress management skills. And that would be way more than adding methotrexate or some other chemotherapy that they then have to add, you know, more monitoring and, and what have you. So, so I cherished and I still utilize the things that those older uh, rheumatologists taught me, even though times have changed greatly. They've grown with times, but they definitely still, you know, hold fast to the thought of listen to the patient and uh, no matter what, you'll never go wrong. Yeah. Awesome. So I'd love to hear kind of, um, you had part of your medical training in Knoxville and then um, you finished your medical training elsewhere and then you came back to Knoxville. Yes. How how did all that transpire? Yes. So at the end of my medical school, I actually had transferred here to the University of Tennessee Medical Center to finish out my rotations as a medical student. Oh my gosh. I worked with anesthesiology and I say, oh my gosh, because they introduced me to so much. I am such an outdoorsy person. Dr. Smith had introduced me to rock climbing in the Obeds and then Oh my gosh, all the other anesthesiologists taught me how to do crazy, like wake surfing. I didn't even know that was a thing until I came here to Knoxville and oh gosh, I learned how to snowboard in Gatlinburg. It just was endless and I fell in love. There, If I ever got stressed out, it was so funny. My mom uh, would say, go for a walk, go for a hike, go, go somewhere because she knew that that was the yin to my yang, she knew that that would help kind of calm me and help manage that stress. And so I just knew that this is totally the place for me. So I met my husband, interestingly, again, through an anesthesiologist there at the <laughs> University of Tennessee. And he was actually living in, in um, Chattanooga at the time. And so 
and his family all lives down there. So this just seemed like the logical place to be, awesome. honestly. Awesome. So, so yeah, so you came back here in um, 2015, right? Yes. And then started working for... Um, rheumatology consultants. Rheumatology consultants. And um, yeah, I love uh, maybe fast forward a bit because I know that you've opened up your practice now. And maybe, um, yeah, let our listeners know kind of why why did you decide to go out on your own? I mean, that's a, that's a big step. A huge step. It's kind of counter to um, what a lot of, I mean, you kind of hear all these kind of small independent practices getting bought up, bought out by bigger, you know, hospital systems and yep. bigger systems. And um, and here, you know, you've done the opposite yeah. and created a, a small little independent clinic. So I'd love to hear kind of what, take us on that journey a bit of, of why. Why I made the move. Why you made the move, what really um, motivated you to do that. There were a lot of reasons. So I was going to, let me go back just a little bit. Right sure. before I actually hired on with rheumatology consultants, Dr. Wynn and Wolf were the two <clears throat> rheumatologists that I inherited their patients from. They were the ones in the very beginning that said, we are losing our time with patients because of healthcare, the demands of uh, commercial insurance, the demands of Medicare, and the way that it's headed, patients will no longer be able to see their doctor anymore. You need to start thinking, they would call it concierge medicine. You need to start thinking about concierge medicine. And at that time, it was just, you know, cash payment. And it was so selfish for doctors to think about going to cash payment because only the elite could afford that and, and what have you. But that's where they put the little bug in my ear. And I started really listening and watching how all of these newer requirements <laughs> came out from Medicare and then Obamacare. Um all sorts of things that actually started cutting away and chipping away the time that I had with my patient. But nonetheless, I still endured. I still picked up both of those retiring physicians' practices. And initially, my time, I had quite a bit more time just because they had kind of thinned out their practices already a little bit. And so I was able to spend time with the patients and then get them on the proper therapy. And honestly, that just took time. And in spending the longer amount of time with my patients, I learned more about them and I learned how to better treat them. Some of them, it was when I brought up the topic of, okay, well, what does your diet look like? That was a big thing. They'd never been asked about that before. Mm. And so they loved it. And then kind of rumors spread, not rumors, but I guess it was kind of good rumors because then people started saying, hey, go talk to Dr. Baker if, if you know, you're not getting the answers you want or, you know, you're kind of at a plateau and can't get any better despite being on, you know, full course treatment. And so that grew. And as that grew and I gained a lot more new patients and my new patient wait list, like got started getting really booked out to months. And then being able to see my new patients back in a reasonable amount of time ended up getting stretched out to like three, four, six months, which is not ideal when I'm trying to get somebody under control uh, in this whole, we call it treat to target. It's a movement by rheumatology about almost 10 years ago now, where is the idea is we make changes today to get the patient in remission within three months. And that means you've, you better be close knit to that. You better be seeing them frequently early on in order to get to that without just shutting down their immune system entirely. And so I say all that because I was running out of time with my patients. Um, my schedule became super booked. I had, I no longer had any time to talk to my patients and their expectations didn't change at all. They, mm. their expectations was that I would still continue to spend 
30, 45 minutes with them and I couldn't. And what ended up happening was that I would spend all of my time with the patient and then all of the required documentation would wait until bedtime and that time was taken away from my family. So then I would do it from, I would work on my documentation from 11 p.m. until 2 a.m. So it cut into my sleep and and I was like a hamster wheel. I, I was going crazy. I was super frustrated. I couldn't do what I wanted to do with my patients. I didn't have the time with my patients. I didn't have the time with my family. And a lot of my patients have grown to become my family, to mm. tell you. And they could see that. They could see my frustration. They could see my exhaustion. And all of, not all of them, but the people that had, had got, grew to know me and were genuinely interested in my well-being could see that I was just tiring out. And so when I started looking at other options, such as direct care, you know, and I started learning about direct care, again, you know, it was it used to be termed as concierge, and I've learned that there's a difference between that. I learned that I can start, I can change that. I have the power to change that. And in being able to still provide for my patients and be able to chisel out time in my day in case they flared. And that was another problem while I was at rheumatology consultants. If my patients flared, I couldn't see them. And I know my patients better than anybody else. And so they would get frustrated. I would get frustrated. And so direct care just seemed to make the most sense. Sure. And it was, it just made the most sense for not just me, but my patients, my family, all around. And so I just, uh, I started praying about it. And in church, we had started talking about the book of Matthew. And over and over and over, I felt like, Jesus was just coming to me saying, are you going to listen to me? Are you ready? You know, I felt like he was sitting at my tax table saying, are you ready to just follow me and believe in me and have faith in me and know that I have your back and I'm going to take care of you? And so I just said, okay, I think this is where I need to go. And oh my gosh, that was hard. That was very hard. Um, You know, I, I obviously had already looked at my other options as far as billing and all that other stuff. But when I started thinking about billing again, you know, all the documentation with billing came back and all of that time requirement and taken away from, I was like, that's not where it's at. That's the problem with our current healthcare is that all of the requirements that we have to have, it's no longer between the physician and the patient anymore. It's about making sure you spend 75% of your time documenting so that you can get reimbursed properly um, in a good amount of time. And so I was like, that's not for me. And this is this direct care is totally where I want to be. And so when I started looking into that, some of the things that were important to me was being able to provide for people who don't have the means to do that. And, it, and some people think of direct care and cash pay as unaffordable because some people still have to pay for their insurance and some people still have high deductibles and all sorts of stuff. And they're like, how can I do that? How can I pay you and pay my high deductible and everything else? But I was volunteering for Interfaith Clinic and that's a free medical clinic for people who don't have insurance um, who usually still work. So I came up with kind of an algorithm and a way that would work for both those patients and my current patients that wouldn't still obviously their pocketbook and allow me to still spend time with my patients. And so that was a huge leap of faith. And honestly, it has been such a blessing. I love the fact that I can... If my if a patient's like, hey, I can't come in. I had somebody text this morning. I can't come in today at eleven. Do you mind if I move it to one o'clock? I was like, sure. Mm-hmm. It was so easy for me to do that, and 
it's just been amazing. My office is just like a home. So when people walk in, they feel like they're right at home. I want them to be comfortable. I want them to feel like they can talk to me about whatever they want to talk to me. And I love that. I love being able to help them in whatever way I can, whether it's emotional help, physical help, spiritual help. I'm by far no perfect. Like I don't, I, I don't know everything about everything, but I am definitely the type of person to never stop trying to help in whatever way I can. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Dr. Baker, too, and um, your story and your journey. And, you know, I identify with, you know, a lot with um, what you say. And unfortunately, just having interviewed, you know, a number of other, you know, medical professionals, like that's your, your stories, you know, replicated in others, too, with just how... This, the medical system can come at odds with why you got into the field in the first place. And when when those come to odds, then you just have a decision to make. Am I just going to kind of, you know, let my purpose, you know, kind of, kind of cast that aside and just kind of do what I'm doing the best that I can? And, or, you know, do I look kind of beyond the regular kind of, system and see if I can find a better way that doesn't require you to sacrifice, you know, your livelihood, your family, family, but also still meet a need in a unique way for patients who desire that. So, so yeah, thank you for taking that leap of faith. I know you're, you're serving and creating opportunity for people who have, you know, are getting disappointed and aren't fitting, kind of finding that their needs are being met in the, you know, the, the, the current, you know, regular model. Yeah. I love maybe just um, for our listeners, the idea of concierge medicine, I think is something that people have probably heard of, you know, to some degree. When we start talking about direct pay, the difference, it's probably a newer term for a lot of people. How would you, if, if you know, somebody, you know, a neighbor, somebody was asking or somebody at church, how would you describe to them the difference, kind of what your practice is, kind of how it's set up, just kind of a simple explanation for, that somebody can understand? Okay, so this is probably the best way for me to explain it is, so here in Knoxville, concierge medicine, those physicians pay an additional fee on top of patients still paying their co-pays and whatever else. The physician gives the patient 24-7 access to their physician, but the patient still pays their co-pays. Everything still goes through insurance, and it's still just like a normal healthcare-type practice. And the physician is actually still tied to everything that the insurance says that they can and can't do. But the patient pays an additional amount of money, usually per year, just to have that direct access and longer visits with their their doctor. So direct care means that the, the relationship between the physician and the patient is just that. It is only between the physician and the patient. The insurance company has no say on how, how much time you can spend with the patient, how to manage that patient, literally takes out the middleman in many ways. Now, patients who choose to utilize direct care, I don't actually, I would still encourage them to have insurance, whether it's catastrophic insurance or something, because my patients will still use their insurance for medications or physical therapy or, or x-rays or something like that. Yeah, accidents. Um, right. But I, I mean, there's just, there's this huge flux of these um, high deductible plans that most patients can't afford to tell you the truth. They're still paying this high premium and then they still have a 3000 6000 $8,000 deductible that is almost impossible to meet sometimes unless you have some sort of big surgery or something that just chews all that up. But they're still responsible for that amount of money. And so when you go to direct care, I'll just use mine. 
and several of the other direct care physicians here in Knoxville, there's usually a membership. There's either, there's two ways to go direct care. There's either kind of a membership type thing where patients will pay monthly for like a subscription or uh, patients will pay fee for service, which means you have a set fee for a set service. So, you know, 30 minute exam, 60 minute exam or whatever, or visit. And so there's, there's two different ways to, to go about that. I just lost my train of thought. But I guess the bonus to doing the direct care is that you're, you're cutting out the insurance. You're, you're cutting out all of the additional requirements the insurance uh, tells us we have to do. So, And I say things a lot of patients don't understand that insurance requires us to, to make sure we dot every single I and cross every single T and make sure I ask about your dog. I'm joking. But there's so many things they want us to do that they call meaningful and it's meaningless because in the grand scheme of things, it changes nothing with how I manage the patient. And yet I still have to take the time out to ask about these things and address it in documentation and that's time consuming and so when I say that it's when I take out of insurance requirements I have so much more time to focus on what the patient actually needs I now have the ability to make my goals the patient's goals so or the patient you know so I tried to mimic that and if if I was taking insurance I had to actually make the patient's goals kind of fit the insurance Insurance, goals, unfortunately. But that's just how it goes. And so the direct care um, also opens up so many other possibilities. So direct care, I am able to uh, contract with labs, other imaging centers around here for reduced pricing labs or x-rays or MRIs at a significantly lower price that um, it's for most patients with high deductibles, it's like, why not? You're not likely to, you know, meet that $8,000 deductible. You're still paying, you know, some of my patients pay, you know, gosh, up to $800, $900 a month for their premium. And I'm like, this is, I can get that CBC for $3 versus $32 and stuff like that. And it just, it's kind of a no brainer that direct care is so much cheaper when you literally take the insurance out of it. And for most of my patients, that's ideal. You know, they want to pay less. They don't want to pay more, even though they're paying towards their insurance. But again, even if they're using their insurance to pay for that lab, I bet you, I mean, the patient is still probably paying more for that lab, even though like, and I'll use this. So like a patient has insurance. She went in and tried to use her insurance to pay for the set of labs, just for monitoring labs, CBC, CMP. And usually I can order that out of my office for like, six seven dollars i mean just nothing yeah they charge her insurance 30 some dollars the insurance only agrees to pay 20 dollars. the patient's paying 10 dollars for it like i'm just saying for the cbc and then they're having to pay 10 dollars for a cmp so the patient's still paying way more to utilize her insurance it's just it's kind of a no-brainer and patients don't understand that this is such a newer system that i'm excited it's actually growing there's a lot of physicians going to this because Healthcare prices are because of commercial insurance and all of the other requirements that are pushed upon us by Medicare and the government that it naturally drives up prices. When I was looking at getting out on my own and and looking at hiring a biller, it was going to cost $15,000 a month just to have somebody bill insurance. I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> that's a huge, that's a huge overhead price. Yeah. Uh, so you have to see a lot of patients in order to make sure you're paying $15,000 to just bill insurance. So yeah. it just seems like a no brainer to go direct care. And I had laughed. I was in London, England for six months and I got to see what socialized healthcare was like. There were pros and cons to that. 
The pro was overall healthcare prices were significantly less. A, because physicians got to spend the amount of time with their patients because they could. They didn't have to see a ton of patients throughout the day. And if a patient came in and they had the high blood pressure, the physician can say, hey, listen, you need to exercise. And, and they could spend the time to talk about their patient about dietary changes, reduce the amount of salt in your diet, and yada, yada, yada. Here in the U.S., we don't have time to do that. It ends up becoming just another pill. And then you have to get labs to monitor that. And it's just unbelievable. Hmm. I don't think here in the U.S. we would ever have the ability to go truly become a socialized healthcare because our mindsets and, and how we have developed as a country is that you have to have insurance uh, and you have to have this and you have to have all that and and you have to kind of play defensive medicine and offensive medicine and, and it just it won't work in the United States unless we made some big changes. Yeah. So it actually puts the ball back into our court as physicians and it says you have the ability to make changes to reduce the price of healthcare, and it's growing. I'm really excited about it, um, and I think that overall it's going to be good. And it's just going to take people to kind of step out of the. I feel like I'm jumping out of an airplane when I was making the choice to go to direct care. You know, it was like it is. It is a huge jump. It's so it's scary, but it's working out, and my patients are so happy. And that is more rewarding to me than a hefty paycheck. I'll tell you that. The time, my stress is less, and I get to share that with my patient now. And so energy is is contagious. And when I would go into my office visits, knowing I was already an hour behind because I needed to spend 30 minutes with my patient in a 15-minute time slot, that energy was just so contagious and it would transfer to my patient and and, and it just was never good. And so this is totally where true health care is. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that's not, yeah. Thanks again for sharing. I know that yeah, even in the field, I mean, there's a lot of similarities just across the board in healthcare. And, you know, was, you know, my experience before, you know, starting Simply Physio was just very much identify with kind of my satisfaction in my work was starting to dwindle. And, and I think in the moment I didn't fully realize it. And until once I started practicing in the model that I really wanted to, like when that came back, I was like, wow, I've kind of been in this kind of down state, right? And where previously it's my, my purpose is to manage a busy list. Yep. And if at the end of the day, I only have an additional hour of paperwork, it's been a good day, yeah. <laughs> right? And how in the world is that a metric of like success and how I'm defining my, the, how successful the day right. was when it's on like that I can leave at a reasonable time and only have an a- extra hour of paperwork. It's been a good day. It's like, what? That's not what why. Happened? That's what happened. Exactly. That's not why, you know, I or you or anybody in the medical field, you know, got into the profession is to define a successful day in those right. terms. So, yeah. So thank you for, you know, what you're doing. And I know practice is new, exciting, but yeah, just, I know it's a value and will continue to be. So, so thank you for, you know, taking oh, that step. I know it's down. a big step to take, but yeah, thank you for taking, you know, that step. And I'm sure as you continue working in that, you'll kind of reap patience, will you will, oh, but yeah. you will reap the rewards for that. So we're going to take a break right. um, here, a word from our sponsor, and then come back. We're going to talk specifically about arthritis Perfect. and get into some of your questions around the topic of of arthritis. Stay Healthy Knoxville is sponsored by Simply Physio. 
a physio clinic that equips and empowers you to live your life to the fullest so that you can enjoy the things you love to do and be the person you are made to be. Simply Physio specializes in helping people get back to a healthy and active lifestyle, living free from pain and medication and avoiding unnecessary surgery. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to receive a special gift from Simply Physio and enjoy listening to the rest of the episode. All right, guys, welcome back to Stay Healthy Knox on the episode here with Dr. Tanya Baker. Hello. Hello. We are proceeding into the episode um, talking more specifically about arthritis. And so, yeah, I would love to start off on most people have some understanding of arthritis, but if um, we're talking about the differences between even just rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis. Yeah. So arthritis is a very broad term and, and by definition, it means inflammation within a joint. We have since learned that sometimes not all arthritis is inflammatory in nature. And so as a rheumatologist, we typically divide osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis by saying that rheumatoid arthritis tends to be more autoimmune in nature. It tends to be more inflammatory in nature, whereas osteoarthritis tends to be more wear and tear or degenerative type arthritis. So normal wear and tear of the joint versus your immune system attacking the joint. That's the big difference between osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. All right. And then as um, with your practice, you see both. I see both. Correct. Yeah. A lot of times patients with inflammatory arthritis end up with secondary osteoarthritis. So anything that can destroy the joint or the basic architecture of the joint will cause it to prematurely break down. And that is called osteoarthritis. I do see patients who have just osteoarthritis. Um, There are other forms of osteoarthritis that tend to be genetic in nature and can be somewhat problematic. There's also more rarely an inflammatory osteoarthritis that can be quite erosive and deforming, but that's very rare. But I definitely see both. And on average, osteoarthritis is far more common than rheumatoid. We see osteoarthritis in about one in every four Americans, whereas rheumatoid arthritis is about 1% of the patients population. Far more rare. The big difference is rheumatologists tend to usually focus more on rheumatoid patients because that can be very deforming, debilitating, and can ultimately lead to complete loss of function of a joint if you don't get it under control. Whereas osteoarthritis, it, it, it tends to have kind of a constant degradation with activity, or what have you, and it, it doesn't tend to you know, knock you out of the playing field, essentially. So you can still do the things that you want to. It may cause a little bit of pain or stiffness afterwards, but it's not usually going to be debilitating. Sure. Now, you mentioned a rheumatoid patient. Yes. So how would you define a rheumatoid patient? So everything that we do in rheumatology is clinically based. So it's a clinical syndrome of bilateral symmetric. So both hands, same exact joint, mirror image, uh, small joint inflammation. Rheumatoid arthritis um, is an autoimmune disease that usually attacks the mirror image. So if it's your right thumb is being affected, your left thumb is going to be affected at the same exact joint. It's completely mirror, mirror image. That tends to be autoimmune in nature. And so we have to treat the underlying immune system to get that under control. Oftentimes we have to use what's called chemotherapy, which is the same term for cancer treatment. And that's because we're using actually some of the same medications to modulate the immune system. We do that just a little. We use the same medications at significantly lower dosages to just 
pause it. I say, oh, I'm, I'm going to use this. I, methotrexate by far is the most common medication we use for rheumatoid. I use methotrexate to just pause the immune system one day a week, and then I'll let your, your immune system kick back in and, and go. But if we don't treat the immune system in rheumatoid arthritis, it, it can knock you down. Rheumatoid arthritis, because it's autoimmune, after it's done affecting the joints, it can go on to affect other organs of the body, and that's completely irreversible. Um, the damage that's done by rheumatoid arthritis is completely irreversible and can be fast. Hmm. And that's the scare with rheumatoid arthritis. That's why we came up with this treat to target, get them in, make changes today to try to get them into remission within three months, rather than the old theory, which was let's start something watch and wait for three to six months and see if it becomes fully effective. If at the end of the six months it's not you, then you add something else. We don't do that anymore. And honestly, my patients do far better off if I follow that treat to target paradigm, get them under control, maintain them. More likely than not, later on down the road, a couple of years down the road, I can start peeling back their chemotherapy and they do just fine. Hmm. So... Now, are there other conditions that fall underneath your wheelhouse? Oh, um, yes. Oh, yes. So rheumatoid arthritis by far is the most common inflammatory arthritis. Inflammatory. Mm-hmm. Probably in East Tennessee, I would have to say psoriatic arthritis is is a little bit behind that, followed by you know, psoriasis is mostly skin disease, but it is associated with the psoriatic arthritis. Yeah. Lupus is not common, but it's not uncommon for me as a rheumatologist. And then you have things like gout. So gout's inflammatory in nature, but it is not autoimmune. So that's pretty common here in East Tennessee. But the list goes on. You know, I I treat things like scleroderma, vasculitis, inflammation of your blood vessels. Oh gosh, I have a huge list. Hmm. And again, it's all clinical. And so oftentimes patients will come to me with a myriad of of symptoms. And it's, and then I, what I tell my patients is that these are all pieces of a puzzle and what I'm doing is I'm just gathering pieces to the puzzle, and I'm going to try to manipulate those pieces to create a picture. And that's what I'm trying to do. I usually, nine times out of ten, can't create a picture within the first three months. But usually by the end of the year, I can start to put pieces together and, and define a diagnosis. So that's why it's so important for us as rheumatologists to have this tight niche relationship with our patients. Because I have to know, I tell my patients, you something I want you to call me. Something happens and you're like, I don't know if this, I don't care if you let me figure it out. Let me do the worrying. Just tell me. And that way I can, I may or may not need that piece of puzzle, but I'd like to have it in case I get to the final picture and I'm like, "Mm, just something's missing here. That might be what I need. And so it's important, again, the time that we spend with our patients is, is by far going to help us get the diagnosis. Sure. With the condition, so most of these conditions, not osteoarthritis, but is more of a genetic Correct. So case. most of the autoimmune diseases tend to be more genetic or familial, and they tend to be seen in kind of younger patients, women more so than men. Again, there's some correlation with estrogen and um, hormonal effects. And so When I'm dealing with inflammatory versus non-inflammatory arthritis, usually inflammatory arthritis tends to be more genetic. So Mm. that even includes gout. So gout's inflammatory. And again, it's something we see in the family. Hmm. So with most of these conditions, then there's not necessarily a cure. Right. It's more managed. Right, right. I would be interested in how you, how would you define a successfully managed case? I tell my patients, your goal is my goal. 
And so if my patients say, I want to be able to get up in the morning, make my coffee without having difficulty picking up my coffee cup or pouring my milk into my coffee, that's my goal. If patients, my goal ultimately is to keep them functioning in in whatever way or fashion. My other goal is to also prevent damage. So inflammatory arthritis causes damage to the joint if we don't get it under control. And so my goal is going to be, let's get whatever's causing that inflammation under control so that you don't acquire that damage because it's the damage that's going to cause lifelong pain. Mm -hmm. It's the damage that we're going to have a harder time dealing with as we go down the road. And there's so many things that we can incorporate that into that to assist with treatment. But again, it comes down to inflammatory, non-inflammatory, and kind of what the patient wants and needs and preventing damage. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And understand there's, you know, there's definitely a place and a need for medication, injections, infusions, you know, medical management. Are there other things that people can do that can help aid in their management? Yes. In fact, and, and we don't spend enough time talking about dietary modification and or exercise. Your body is meant to move. And one of the old school train of thoughts when it came to inflammatory arthritis is you need to sit, you need to lay down, you need to rest and not do anything. We have completely found that that was the worst thing we could do for our patients a long time ago because if you don't use it, you lose it. Muscles, joints, your brain, anything requires use and and function. And so... I always tell my patients, I want you to keep moving, even if it hurts. I mean, if it's like excruciating, obviously, I want you to let me know because it should not be like that. Mm -hmm. But I want you to be able to keep moving. And if you feel like you need to stop, take a break, try to do something else. But I want you to keep moving and, and working Dietary modification is huge. Um, You know, in the Western world and the busyness of life, it is so easy to get fast food and and to not watch what we eat. But our bodies are meant to eat whole foods, fresh vegetables, fresh fruits. We're not meant to eat fridge fries and hamburgers and all that other good stuff that is so palatable. But it's honestly not good for our system. And so there's been this movement towards an anti-inflammatory diet. And, and um, you know, the, the research on that is actually questionable. But one of the diets that we have found to be pretty healthy and probably the most anti-inflammatory is the Mediterranean diet. And part the, the important parts of the Mediterranean diet is that you limit red meats. You use olive oil, which contains oleocanthal. That is like a that works kind of like an anti-inflammatory. So it kind of works like ibuprofen, interestingly. And they eat a lot of olive oil in the Mediterranean location. And it also incorporates, again, fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, nothing that's really processed. It limits sugar. It limits and actually com- almost completely avoids all artificial sweeteners and things that our body was not meant to use or break down. When they did you know, studies in the world and looked at the places that had like the longest living and healthiest people, these are called the blue regions, again, it tends to be the same places, the Mediterranean and you know, certain areas, Loma Linda in California. <laughs> and so it was fascinating. And when they looked at their diet, it was the diet that changed things. And, and honestly, when we've done lots of studies on what's more important diet or exercise diet or exercise the only thing that reduced arthritis both inflammatory arthritis osteoarthritis wear and tear arthritis was actually diet modification so they had three arms they had a diet modification a diet and exercise modification and an exercise the only two groups that changed or improved were the dietary changes so hmm. that just tells us that 
Your diet is far more important than getting out and exercise. And that's why I always tell my patients, like, I would rather you eat better, (laughs) spend more time getting good food than working on your elliptical two hours a day. Like, it's, you're just, what you're going to get out of that training for two hours, like, is is not going to really help you. (laughs) You're probably doing more damage, but... (laughs) Some of the bigger things that people don't realize is that your joints need water. And so one of the, you know, when I was looking at all the research and stuff, one of the fastest ways that you can reduce inflammation is by drinking water. (laughs) Um, It helps to flush some of the natural byproducts and metabolic products that we create when we're breaking down our food and other uh, cellular metabolism. You know, we create these things that are called free radicals and those tend to create oxidative stress. That's an oxidative stress that tends to be inflammatory. So the anti-inflammatory diet focuses on antioxidant-rich foods that will neutralize all of those free radicals. And that's ultimately what it comes down to. There are so many things about dietary modification that I love to talk about. There are three things that are so questionable today that people argue about as to whether it's anti-inflammatory or inflammatory or what. So dairy in the Mediterranean diet and also, you know, the Food and Drug Administration, you know, part of our, you know, we used to use a pyramid as far as our, our nutrition and what we, how much of what we should get. Well, they incorporated dairy into that. And in the Mediterranean diet, they do use dairy. They use cheeses and stuff. But Dairy has also gotten a bad name and a bad rap as being considered inflammatory. And in some patients, the casein protein can be quite inflammatory. So that's one thing. Um, The other thing is the nightshades. So in the Mediterranean diet, they use nightshades like crazy. Hmm. But nightshades also get a bad rap as being anti or as being inflammatory. And then what's the third one? I just had the two, the dairy, nightshades. Oh, wheat. So Gluten gluten. Mm-hmm. So in the Mediterranean diet, they use, they have whole grains uh, and they incorporate wheat and barley and all that stuff that has gluten, but gluten has, has gotten a bad rap. So what I tend to do with my patients is I talk about whole fruits, whole vegetables, good wholesome foods that are not processed. Fish, fish is another big thing. Uh, it has a lot of omega-3s in it. Again, that tends to be an antioxidant and we don't eat enough fish here in the United States, mm-hmm. but the Mediterranean Sea, they do, obviously. It's a lot easier to get fish there than it is to get your grass-fed beef. But say you should eat like two to three ounces of fish like twice a week. And honestly, that's not a lot. Like most people think I need to be eating that every day. They really don't. Chicken is just as good and those types of wholesome foods that aren't high in um, what we call trans fat. And so again, it just comes back down to being antioxidant. Legumes are very important as an antioxidant. When we looked at um, levels of antioxidants and what foods tend to be rich, pinto beans were actually number four are on the chart for having the highest level antioxidants. Really? Just yeah, just right next to blueberries. So it you know there's a lot of things that people don't realize that your foods can provide, and that just modifying your diet can easily bring down inflammation. And so sometimes I'll have patients patients just sent to me because their CRP is high, that C-reactive protein that tends to be an inflammatory marker. And I will usually go into their diet. They hate talking about that. You know, and so most people do. I hate talking about my diet because it's obviously not healthy. I'm a mother of four children and I'm like a single mom half the time because my husband's flying around the world. So I don't have time and I don't make, you know, the best choices every day. But I know that if I want to start feeling better, I increase my water intake, eat some more, you know, beans and, and fresh fruits and vegetables. And I, I would probably be better off yeah. uh, in the long run. So 
I get it. And it's not easy to change your your diet. And, and I hate calling it diet because it just gets such a bad rap. Mm-hmm. But it really is. It's just how you eat. Um, and I, what I tell my patients is like, I, I'm not going to tell you to cut out simple sugars. I get it. I, I am a sweet freak. But limit it and or try to find a, an alternative for it. So an alternative for me would be um, grapes. Those are nice and sweet. They're full of a lot of water, very healthy, very filling, and they have great antioxidants. So mm. um, that's what I tell my patients. Yeah, find good replacements yeah. in that way. Um, yeah, there's yeah, so many it. options out there. And, you know, everything has come out as organic. But, you know, like I tell my mom, like those organic cookies are not healthy mom like this is not healthy like it's even though it's you know but you know so if you could find alternative ways to get something that gives you that cruncher or whatever you'd be best served with that yeah yeah satisfy that sweet tooth just a little bit or the crunch um, you know there's there's different things that everybody has their craving for um but there's always an alternative option definitely definitely well um yeah, that's um, I, yeah. Thank you for sharing too. That's a lot of great tips and you know recommendations, some steps that people can take, you know, some active steps where um, they can participate right yeah. in their care and when and if they have the capacity to want to kind of make those kind of those other changes. It's helpful, I'm sure, for yourself to help oh, yeah. to have time to help kind of guide somebody or even just to bring it up. Right. Right. It's like this isn't all that we are left to do, we can also explore these other, some lifestyle changes, which, right. you know, does take a level of commitment. But if you're you're willing to kind of make some small changes, uh, we'll see if we can just kind of explore this route and kind of get both in our favor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's been amazing. It does take a little bit of time, but I tell my patients, it's kind of like watching the grass grow. If you sat and watched the grass grow, you're never going to see it grow. But if you take a step back and you come back to that and you're going to be like, wow, the grass really did grow after, you know, a week or whatever. Same thing happens with dietary modifications, lifestyle modifications. It's not something you truly see, but if you get into that habit and then you go on vacation and you happen to fall out of that habit, you realize how crummy you feel, Mm -hmm. how much more tired you are and just run down and bloated and all sorts of other stuff that we normally, before we made modification, we thought that was normal and it's not. So it's really cool to see that. Yeah, awesome. We got a few questions here that okay. ask all our guests um, here at the end. A little bit of uh, Knoxville, East Tennessee flair. So, the first um, question, Dr. Baker, is tell us uh, something that's on your bucket list around Knoxville, East Tennessee that um, you've been wanting to do. Oh, my goodness. Probably. Oh my gosh, I'd love to try wake surfing again. I, I got to go out once and I watched a lot of people do it and I tried it but i want to i want to try that again yeah. i think that would be really fun yeah i've never tried but i um it looks it looks a lot of fun and i've you know talked to the people that have and so that's kind of that's one thing i'm, I'm hoping to check off this summer yeah we actually we and the other thing i was thinking was you know rock climbing we actually have a rock climbing wall in our garage <laughs> wow and I, but i'm just too lazy to use it or i'm you know having to belay my children and that's boring but you know i was like maybe i can practice and build my upper arm strength and get better at that but i'm like no i'd be best served relying on my thighs because they're a lot heftier i guess <laughs> <laughs> there you go <laughs> what about a uh, favorite place to explore outside um, around knoxville when you got um, some time want some fresh air oh my gosh i love to go up towards the Obeds, the place that's north almost to Oak Ridge. Oh, not the Obeds. The Frozen? Frozen Head? No, that... no, no, no. My gosh. Audie Smith um, created trails, bike trails 
And I like to go to the Arboretum. Hall Ridge. Hall Ridge. Yeah. Yes, Hall Ridge. Um, I love that place. Uh, and they have a nice little like sidewalk that you can ride your bike on or whatever. Um, and so on the river there. Yes. Yeah. It's so pretty. Uh, it's so quiet and quaint. I love that. It's just so peaceful. It would be nice to go without my children. I love my children, but they're just so loud. <laughs> like, Shh, like, is there any fish out there? Like, People are trying to go fishing and they're not catching anything. I'm so sorry. But it is it is beautiful out there. And there's just, there's so many trails. You could just get lost in, in, in that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we did get lost once. And it was just me and my four kids. And it started raining and they cried. It was very sad, but fun. I mean, there's just so but much. But you made it do. out. Oh, yes. And I you love horseback riding. I have three horses going up to, is it Norris Lake? North? Mm-hmm. I'm really bad with names. Beautiful. And it's shaded. So in the summertime, it's all, that's probably one of my favorite pastimes is, is, is being horseback on my boys. Nice. So. Nice. Well, uh, what about your favorite restaurant? Oh, that's tough. So Taste of Thai is is definitely one of my favorites. I'll tell you, I used to, uh, when I was in Baltimore, my roommate uh, was from Thailand and he ate, he ate dead baby fish every day, which was absolutely disgusting. But uh, he also made some of the best Thai I've ever had. And it was hard for me to find somebody to make authentic Thai, but Taste of Thai comes pretty close to okay. that. So awesome. it's really good. And then uh, for our listeners, um, if you were leaving us a uh, best um, t- tip or recommendation for staying healthy. Keep moving. Don't stop moving uh, or using your brain or, or whatever else. Uh, you know, my husband last year was like, if you could give your patients one thing for Christmas, all of them the same thing. And I said it would be a round of physical therapy. All of us have learned um, compensatory mechanisms by how we move that sometimes it's not the healthiest way. Um, but the most important part of keeping healthy is just keep moving. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, how can people get in touch with you? Oh, yes. So there's many ways. My phone number, can I say that on here? It's no? up to you. Yeah, okay. sure. <laughs> so my phone number, yep. 865-995-7006. That's the business cell phone. My website is rheumatologics.com. I'm going to spell that out because not a lot of people get it. Sure. It's R-H-E-U-M-A-T-O-L-O-G-I-X.com. Um, we'll put that in the um, description of the podcast perfect, too so perfect. people can um, find that. And they can hit the sign up button. And that doesn't obligate them to anything, but um, you know, usually if they want to know more about pricing or how my model works, uh, I encourage them to call or just talk to me. It's and you have a lot of great information on the website too. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's going to be growing. So just we got something up and going, so that my patients from rheumatology consultants, if they wanted to find me, they can they can find me. But there's it, it's going to be growing. And sharing my kind of vision and, and my approach to rheumatology is is going to hopefully end up on there. So Awesome. Thank you for having me yes, here. Yes, thank you. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you and hear more of your story, Dr. Baker. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, and stay healthy, Knoxville. Thank you for tuning in to the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast brought to you by Simply Physio. If your pain is preventing you from staying healthy and active and you'd like to avoid surgery, pain medicine, or just want to get back to doing the things you love in and around Knoxville, we offer both a free ebook and free over-the-phone consultation to help you figure out the root cause of your pain and the next best steps for resolving it. Find our ebooks online at simplypt.com health-tips. There you will find ebooks for topics such as neck and shoulder pain, lower back and hip pain, knee pain, and TMJ. These quick-to-read reports will provide you with expert tips, tricks, and exercises to help solve your pain 
from the comfort of your own home. Just visit simplypt.com slash health tips to download your ebook and have it delivered directly to your inbox. We also offer free, no-obligation phone consultations with a doctor of physical therapy to Knoxville area residents. Just call us at 865-351-0615 or visit us at simplypt.com and click the Talk to a PT button on the home page to schedule a call with us. Thanks again for joining us, and we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast.